So there's a piece of something up here. Is this mine? Okay. Um, so there we go. So uh, Ryan assigned me um, one of our core values for today. By the way, I want you to know that I appreciate that all of you have been praying for Pastor Ryan for his healing. I more than all of you because I want you up here, not me. So we're glad you're back. We're glad you're healthy. Glad you're ready to go. Uh, so Ryan has asked if I would speak on a core practice. We unite for the gospel. And I am going to, through the message, connect it in with one of the other core practices about we rely on the written and living word of God. So I'll try to connect it in there. And just for the sake of those of you who prefer to like take a book and preach through a book, I, I love doing that. I know next week Ryan is going to talk about our, our mission and vision, our main, our main thing, you know, why we exist. I think it's critical that we're clear on that. Uh, but then following that, we're going to walk through the book of John for pretty much the rest of the year. We're going we're gonna to talk about uh, the seven signs in the book of John and the seven I am statements in the book of John. Those were not accidental. Those didn't just happen. Uh, God, through John, intended those things. And uh, so we want to unpack that in a chronological order in, that we find it, in, well, I should say, in a, in a, in a written uh, order that we find it in the Gospel of John. John doesn't tell us he's chronological, so we might get the chronology wrong, but we'll get the flow of John correct. We'll follow him, because John has purposes in putting things where he does based on how God inspired him. But today, I want to talk about we unite for the gospel. You know, one of the, the, the challenges and yet privileges of being in this role, I get to talk with people, families and friends, at critical moments in their life, times like weddings, times like baptisms, times like funerals. And I get in, uh, times in the hospital sometimes, and I get an inside seat at, at how, dare I say it, how petty we can be sometimes. I can't tell you the struggles that I watch with families over... Um, are we having chicken or pork at the wedding? I mean, some of the planning stuff, and, and the reality is here, folks, that, that, that many of those struggles are about connections to dreams, connections to hopes, connections to, to, to desires, uh, also connection to egos, and, and dare I say, sometimes a little arrogance, a little cockiness on our part. Um, and so I... I get the privilege of being in the midst of that, and because of that, uh, it helps me kind of check myself. Why do I share that? Well, so last Sunday I told you that my daughter-in-law went into labor, right? Yeah. 62 hours later, and her labor never stopped. Matthew Justinian Lewis was born. Ten fingers, ten toes, lots more hair than I have right now. Uh, healthy, and we are thrilled, we're excited. 
Um, and yet, um, I have to decide if I my desires are to be a GPS or an SGP. Grandpa proudly sharing or shameless grandpa posting. My, my children and I do not agree about how much posting I should be able to do of my grandson. Did I mention my grandson? On social media. I mean, I get it. You know, they want to kind of be careful and control that, and I understand that. But, hey, look, you were, you were, I wiped your butt when you were his size. The 30 best years of my life committed to you, buddy. Do you know how much it costs to put a kid through college? I mean, come on, don't I have some rights here? Don't I have some authority here? And so there is this, this balancing. I've earned rights. So is this about me sharing my pride and joy? Is it about my economy? I get to do what, what hey, I, I've earned it. Or is it about me affirming their responsible actions in raising their children. And many of you have not seen this picture because I've posted none of them. Not until I get permission. Can we argue both sides? Yeah, yeah. but here's the deal. We want to unite for the sake of the gospel. In other words, you know, if... if if we agree about something, that's not uniting, folks. Uniting is when we have disagreements. Uniting is when, when we both have rights. We both earned a voice. We both earned our thoughts. We both, uh, we, we've done our study. We've done our work. We've, 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 we've poured our sweat and blood in. And at that point, you poured your sweat and blood in, and I did. And, and man, I'm posting those pictures, brother. No, you're not. So at that moment, we as a congregation have chosen to say that we will unite for the gospel. Because the gospel comes before many of my own preconceived primary issues. And I want to try to, to um, walk us through what that looks like and, and how we do that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to walk us through it from the perspective of some of our more mature Christians who have definite opinions about things and, and some many good opinions and how that fits. By the way, I'm going to say this now. I won't say it again. But, but I might even advocate we unite for the gospel. We might even want to say we unite for the kingdom. I only say that because the gospel in its nutshell essence is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation and entrance into the kingdom. But, but let me tell you that God, God's kingdom, if you're going to use the word salvation, is not salvation at a point in time. It's about the big thing of salvation. And God's intention is not just to save you and I. He's saving his whole creation. His, his kingdom work is really big. It's bigger than the kerygma that is so essential to, to who we are as Christians. But I'm not going to try to change it. They did great work, and I think, I think it's right on. But at least think about, as you think through this, you could also put the word Jesus in there. Because while Jesus uh, was born and, and, and lived 
for sinless life and died and rose again from the dead. He's coming back. Uh, if you read the Gospels, he did a whole lot more than that. And he becomes our model for how we live. Not just how we die, but how we live, how we behave, how we act. And we'll look at a couple examples of him as we go through this. In fact, here's a quote from him at the end. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. I find this fascinating. Um, some people would say, well, that's not really a new commandment. No, it actually is. If you look at it really carefully, it's a new commandment. Because here's what he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. That's not new. But he says how to love one another. To what extent do you love one another? And the extent that he gives, the status, the, the, the bar that he gives us, the way I've loved you. And you do realize in this whole context here, it's the last bit of instructions that he's given to his disciples before he walks to the cross and they watch it. So I, I don't want you to, to, to just love one another as much as you uh, love yourself. Jesus says, I, I'm giving you a new command. Love one another the way I've loved you. I mean, beyond. Unbelievably beyond. So you must love one another by this. And here it is. Here's why. You see, Jesus cares about you, but he doesn't just care about you, but he cares about what he's going to accomplish for those out there through you. Because God's desire, his, his redemptive nature is bigger than those of us here. It's huge. I know some theologians say you don't want to talk about God's heart that grieves. I think God's heart grieves. And we can work out the theology of that if you want. I think he grieves. Folks, often what stands in the way of our uniting for the gospel is actually our knowledge of the scriptures that we use to prop up our own agenda, agenda or our own ego. And I'm going to try to show you that in a couple places. Uh, I, I had a statement with my kids that I used to give all the time, raising them. I mean, you've had this before, and if I shared this before, forgive me, because I things that I that are foundational to me I share often. But have you ever have you ever said to your kids, "Hey, go do such and such," and they say, "Sure." And then two hours later, hey, I thought you were going to do such and such. Yep, I'm going to do it. I'll do it. Don't worry, I'll do it. And you go to bed, and you wake up in the morning, and the thing's not done. Anyone, I see some heads nodding like this, you know. Yeah, good word. Yeah. And, then, and then you go to remind your, particularly if they're older, child, um, whether it's an adult child or a teenage child, but an older, and you, you begin the phrase of, hey, about the grass, and you only get that much out. I know, Dad, I know. That's indignant. You know, I know, I know. And my phrase was always, to know and to not do is to not know. So here was the gospel, too, to know the scriptures and not live the scriptures, but reference the scriptures. I think God looks at that kind of like I looked at my son when he's not mowing the grass. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'll take a risk. Okay. 
I'm going to leave that blank for a little bit. Here's the deal. The Bible, the Word of God, I, I should have brought one up just to hold it up. The Bible, its entirety, is inspired and it's authoritative. But your interpretation of the Bible is not. Because of that, there are at least three things that are true. Number one, we need each other. Definition of a blind spot, something I don't see. And whether it's a blind spot in a car, whether it's a blind spot in my parenting, whether it's a blind spot in my job, my business, my relationships, or my theology. The definition of a blind spot, we all have glasses that we look at things through. I'll never forget, I was in a Bible study, and I won't, I won't give the specifics, but it was a discovery Bible study, and every study we asked the same six questions, and we tried to stick just to the text we were at, so the people weren't cross-referencing and, you know, shutting up the people who didn't know as much as they did. And, and we were looking at one particular passage, and it was a passage I had always understood one way, always understood it that way. And, and someone looked at it and said, well, so... It's, it's the passage that talks about one's taken and one's left. You know, there's fields and there's homes and one's taken, one's left. And, and he said this, he said, you know, it's not clear to me that it's the one who's doing good that gets taken. And I'm like, oh, come on, sure it is. I mean, read it. What, what's the matter with you? And I, I literally, he's, he's a brand new believer. He's like two weeks old in the Lord. And he says this, really smart guy. And I just kind of crushed it and we went on. The next week I came back and I profusely apologized because you know what? The text is right. It's not clear. But I had seen it so clearly for so long because it was the glasses that I had on. And I'm not saying it's not the right way, but there is an, an authentic other way to look at this passage. And I needed someone else to actually point out my blind spot. The second thing I needed, <laughs> more humility. I need to realize that even those things that I'm pretty sure about, I might be wrong about. I think I quoted this last week, but, but um, I read a, a medical doctor who said in medical school they actually teach their doctors 50% of what we teach you is going to be wrong. We just don't know which 50%. That's kind of a scary thought. But they do the best with what they have, and it's a whole lot better than what I have. And so I receive it, and I accept it. But, but somehow we need to approach this whole sense of uniting for the gospel, recognizing I need you, I need humility. And then number three, when we're all said and done, I need to prioritize the gospel. I need to prioritize the kingdom of God. So um, Ryan asked that I connect it, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I spent a lot of time in other messages on this, but this is connected to re we rely on the living and written word of God. We unite for the gospel. It's another kind of core practice for us that we rely. We and rely in many, many, many ways. But notice that we say the written and living word of God, because here's the deal. The scriptures are the inspired and authoritative witness to God's supreme revelation of Jesus. You want to know what what the, the most profound revelation of God to us is? It's not the book. It's the man. It's Jesus. God incarnate. God himself came down and lived among
among us. He's tabernacled among us. And thank God that he put in his plan to inspire men and women to, to write out the scriptures and give us an authoritative witness. But their authoritative witness is to the supreme revelation of Jesus. And because that's true, we need to be humble. We need one another. And we need to prioritize Jesus. I'm going to say something, and some of you might be uncomfortable with it. That's okay. That's part of my job. But, but when I'm done, I think you'll see that it's true. When we unpack the Scriptures, when we choose to follow the Scriptures, it is important that we weigh Scriptures by their intended theological proximity to Jesus. In other words, how clearly do they reveal, point to, help us understand the supreme revelation of God who is a person, Jesus. And I know that we get into trouble when we talk about weighing the Scriptures, but it is an absolute essential activity if we are going to unite for the Gospel. Um, so I was, I was actually going to do a little exercise, and I'm just technologically unsophisticated, and I didn't get it out there soon enough. But what I was going to do was, was give you guys all like an app. I'm sure there's one out there. I don't know what it is. But like you point to one of those little fancy code things, you know, and get the app. And then I was going to put up two scriptures. And you were going to tell me uh, which, were, which were more important. So, for instance, I might, I might put up, um, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9. Or, below that, I might put up, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I'm pretty sure we get 98% on the first one. It might be one or two, you know, you always have a few. By the way, I was sharing this with Ryan, he said, be really careful, Matt. If you put that verse up about take a little wine with your water, you're going to some you're going to get some legacy Kansas people that are going to say yes that one that one. So I didn't do it, but my hope was then to actually finally get to some places where you're going to have to do a values judgment. I'm going to take two verses and maybe from two different theological camps where because you know theological camps camp. That's what they do. They camp on various verses. They camp on various books. They camp on various um, truths. And, and, and God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Who can know the mind of God? God is fully able to reveal, but we are not fully able to figure that out. And so we have this, this tension. We have this, this seeming paradox, this, this uh, inability to reconcile. And I, I was going to put them up, and then the hope was with that little thing, it would actually pop up numbers. So on the easy ones, you know, 98 and 2, and everyone's like wondering who the two people that think you should greet one out of the holy kiss. And, um, but then... But then some of them, I'm almost sure we get like a 60-40. And um, some of the people I consulted with said, no, don't do that. You're going to create problems, Matt. Don't do that. And others said, no, no, it's really good for people to realize that everything I think is not necessarily what everyone else thinks. The point for this message is there are some essential doctrines of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, some realities about Jesus and we choose to unite around those. Now, don't hear me say the other ones aren't important. Please don't hear me say that. Um, I, I want people who have a theological perspective and have thought it out and thought it out well 
to share their theological perspective. I just want them to do it with the same humility that I'm going to try to do as I share it. And the same ears that I'm going to try to use when they share it, that they have those when I share and we don't agree. It's one of the things I've appreciated about Ryan. Um, he does a good job in that, in that area. So, um, if Jesus is the, the center of this theological piece, let me just say this and I'll leave it. I'm not going to unpack it, but uh, if you can only get to your preferred doctrinal position by relying primarily on the Old Testament, you might want to rethink your thoughts. Just say it and I'll leave it. Okay, so... Um, give you some examples. So they asked Jesus, one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, Jesus could have preemptively quoted Paul. Paul hadn't written it yet, but the Holy Spirit could have inspired it, because at least when he was in eternity, he knew all things, and and the Holy Spirit, and he could have said, well, you know, according to God, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He could have called into question their assumption that there are some things in Scripture that take priority over other things. He didn't happen to do that, by the way. No, what he said is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. By the way, I love it. He says, do four things. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some of you remember back to our spiritual stations uh, series where we talked about the stations of loving God with various aspects of who you are. But at least for Jesus, there was a commandment that took priority when he looked at the entirety of Scripture. Love God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And then the second one is kind of like it. Notice he said the second one. He's actually doing a little ranking here. Okay. Um, Feinberg, um, he made the comment that, um, that reading Scripture is, is kind of like an arrow, a, a board that we shoot arrows at. I was going to do a dartboard, and then I realized that dartboards are really confusing for those who play it all the time. The center is not always the most points, you know, so, so I avoided that. Um, and, and the point here is, the, that arrow in the blue, is that val valuable? You can answer, is that valuable? Do you have points for that? What about the one in the yellow? Is that more valuable than blue? So do we, this week, no, the blue doesn't count as much as the yellow, so just pull the blue and the red out, they don't count as only the yellow, is that the way we play the game? No. The blue and the red are, are important because all Scripture is God-breathed. And all Scripture is profitable. Profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting. And I forget the fourth one, but you get it. Thank you. I knew there was someone who would get it. But next time, say it louder. Let other people hear it. Because I didn't even hear it, but I know you helped me out. Appreciate that. Um, let me give another one that I think is helpful. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about divorce here. 
but I'm going to talk about Jesus' use of scriptures when he was questioned about divorce. Because divorce has been a confrontational uh, issue for a long time in biblical history. Uh, all the way back in the time of Jesus, there were, there were really two major camps. One that was very strict and one that was very lenient, and both were sure that they were right. And, and so the, the Pharisees were pretty sure they could trap him up because this was one of these perpetual difficult issues that, that uh, they didn't feel could be fully resolved, that there were people on both sides. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to get divorced? And Jesus goes back to creation. He goes back to the very beginning of the scriptures. He goes back into Genesis. And he basically says to them, look, God made it this way. What God joins, don't separate. They go, ah, I got him. They said, okay, Lord, well, so Moses said, and they quote Moses, that Moses said you're to give a certificate of divorce. What about that one, Jesus? To which Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Um, here's the point. Jesus waited the scriptures, acknowledging the authenticity of all of it, but to come out what God's desire is. I had a really good friend who said to me, he told a story, um, he was a college buddy and then became a ministry buddy and we served on, on the board for missions together and uh, he and, and some friends of his actually modeled the way he modeled a form of chance of, of church planting that, that we just lo- went and learned from because it was, it was so helpful and so meaningful. Um, but he told a story of his brother, his older brother, who was his and his wife, his wife's Cassie, Rod and Cassie. Uh, they were their heroes in the faith. He said, I looked up to Rod, or to my brother, all my life. I mean, all, all my life through my, my Christian journey, I wanted to be like my brother. He loved Jesus. He he served Jesus. He, he studied the scriptures. He lived holy. He did many of the things that he was able to do, I struggled with. He said, I, I so looked up to him. And he said, and then one night, he called me, and he asked to put Kathy on the phone, too. And he told Kathy and I that he and his wife were getting a divorce. And he said, it rocked my world. He said, man, I, I just didn't know what to do with that. Because my hero was doing something that he didn't believe in. And he said that he and Kathy had this long conversation that night. They spent all night just talking about their own relationship, about their own marriage, about Christianity, about our faith, about how things work. And he said, when we got done, it was early in the morning, like two in the morning, we came to this conclusion. For us, two things. Number one, divorce is not an option. Number two, if we don't pay a lot of attention to our relationship, it's a possibility. I thought, what a wonderful, gracious, honest statement. It comes out of being what Jesus does when he weighs the scriptures. So too, we, we try here, we attempt here, we work here, we preach here to, to weigh the scriptures in a way that allows us to unite for the gospel. Okay, let me give you an example of this that comes out of 1 Corinthians 8. If you have your Bible, you can open there. I'm going to read the whole passage. If you have your phone, you can turn that on. 
Uh, I'll be out of the NIV. So if you have a phone, go to the NIV. It'll be easier to follow. Or go to another one, and then you can check the NIV. That's fine. Uh, so Paul is, is, um, is talking to a, a church that has Jews and Gentiles, a church that actually had a lot of problems. Um, I often, when people say, we want to be the New Testament church, I always say, which one? The Corinthian church? I mean, they really had issues. Uh, in fact, Paul's letter there, the first, he keeps saying, now concerning, now concerning. And, and it almost gets the sense that they had actually written him a letter and said, hey, we got all these issues, Paul. What should we do? And he just kind of went through the laundry list of all of their things and said, well, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. And he, and he, he gave them uh, what, I don't know, at the time, maybe he knew it was inspired, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But God's inspired word to them now concerning various things. And for them, the issue was that uh, temples in the Greco-Roman world generally had restaurants attached to them. So people would sacrifice non-believers. This is uh, Romans. Would take meat to the temple and they would sacrifice it and and they would like cut off the ear from the animal and give that to God, and the rest of it they'd sell in the market or in the restaurant. Um, it's kind of like the pastor who said, "You know, uh, we take the offering, and I just trust God. I draw a circle and I throw it up, and whatever lands in the circle belongs to God, and the rest is mine." And the other guy says, "Yeah, I do the same thing, but I have more faith." I draw the circle and I throw it all up and whatever lands outside the circle belongs to God and the middle's mine. And the third guy, faith healer, said, hey, look, you guys don't have enough faith. It's all God's. God gets it all. So I take it and I throw it all up and say, God, take whatever you want. Whatever comes back is mine. So these folks were giving, were, were sacrificing, but very little went to the God and the rest got sold. And the challenge was that that. The Jews liked some of the restaurants. And the Gentiles who were converted had sacrificed to idols. And so that's the context. We'll say a little more later because we're going to go to 10 as well, chapter 10. But listen to it. Now about food sacrificed to idols. So they must have sent him a letter and said, what do we do with this? Uh, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. By the way, note in here that Paul has a little sarcasm in his use of the word knowledge. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. They have knowledge. It's eh, a little inadequate. But whoever loves God, priority, is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 
But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols. They've lived in an idol world for so long that when they eat food sacrificed to idols, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Food doesn't bring us nearer to God. So we're no worse if we eat or better if we do not eat. But be careful. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with, your, with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in a temple's on an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge? So he's not saying your knowledge is wrong. He's saying your knowledge is insufficient because to know and to not do is to not know. That what you say you know, you don't fully know, and you're using it in a way that, that benefits you. And God wants us to be united for the gospel. There's something more important here. And we'll see that again, by the way. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by our knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, wow. When you take your freedom, knowing that you can eat the meat, knowing that there's no idol, it's okay. It's fine. Nothing wrong with it. And when you do it in a way that they watch it and their, their own faith is, is crushed, even though, you know, maybe theologically they're not as astute as you are. And yet when you do that, you sin against them. That's a pretty profound statement. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, here we go, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will not eat meat again, so that they will not, so that I will not cause them to fall. Um, this picks up again in uh, chapter ten, and in this context, it's no longer about going to a restaurant, but for many of these of these uh, uh, Greek converts to Christianity. Uh, to fulfill Judaism, if you will. Uh, many of these, these converts, these, these now followers of Jesus, would buy their meat at the temple as well. And some of them are still buying their meat at the temple because what they do. You do know that when, when, uh, when people first get saved, some of the practices that aren't so good sometimes continue. I had a friend, a guy who led me to the Lord at one point, he said, do you know what you get when a jerk gets saved? A saved jerk, yeah. That, that God's transformation is often over time. That God can do this wonderful work in someone, but, but there are some hang-ons there. There's some behavioral stuff that, that the Holy Spirit has to work out within us. And so, so these people are going back to the normal practices, and, and he's saying, oh, what, so what, what should we do when we go to their house and they serve us this meat, and we're pretty sure it was sacrificed to an idol, and how should we handle this? And here's what Paul says. No one should seek their own good, but rather the good of others. Continue the verse. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions for conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to eat, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising a question of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, ah, then don't eat it. In other words, don't make an issue out of it. But if they make an issue out of it, then be clear about your conscience. There's only one God, and that's the one you follow. So the behavior can be very different depending on the context, the circumstance, the operational correct thing to do as a follower of Jesus is not based on a rule, eat the meat or don't eat the meat. But it's rather based on how this is going to impact someone whom Jesus died for. Now, realize that's not true in every context, you know. Uh, the boy in high school who says to the girl in high school, I love you, sleep with me. If you sleep with me, I'll go to church. No, 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 no. That doesn't fit in this context. But there are many things that don't really violate our conscience. And so in those cases, let's, let's lay it down. Why? For the sake of the other. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of the conscience, I'm referring to the other person's conscience. I had another great illustration, but I'm not going to give it. So, two weeks ago, I talked about bounded set. Many of you remember that. I'm not going to re- refer to it again. Uh, and then I talked about the centered set, the, the bounded set, there's rules and regulations. Uh, my own bounded set when I first came to the Lord was, um, if you're a Christian, you confess Jesus as your Lord and, and believe that he rose from, died for your sins and rose from the dead. You go to church Sunday morning, you go to church Sunday night, you go to church Wednesday night if you're really spiritual. You tithe and you witness and you speak in tongues. That's what you did if you were like, like a bounded set person in, in the tradition that I was raised in. Well, that I met the Lord in in college. Um, the centered set is more about motion and trajectory. It's about, about are you pointed toward Jesus and are you moving? Or are you pointed away from Jesus and moving? And so the important piece is, is not that you have the bounded set all handled, but what, what's your direction? It's for the sake of the gospel. When I teach this, I didn't last time, but I usually teach a third uh, paradigm, a way of looking at this. And I'm going to walk you through that really quick. It's called a developmental set. It was uh, developed by Dr. Terry Wardle. It's not Wardle as an O, it's Wardle as an A, Wardle. Um, and he said this. He said that, that people develop in their faith similarly to the way a child develops into adulthood. That there are developmental stages. And that there are important pieces that we need to focus on depending on our developmental stage. By the way, uh, this resonates with, with both Jesus and Paul. Jesus said, and if I tell you of earthly things and you don't understand, I can't even begin to tell you about heavenly things. I've got to start down here where you can get it, and then we'll get on to those things. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.2, they talk about the difference between milk and solid food. Uh, the writer of Hebrews. So now we have three. We have Jesus, and we have Paul, and we have the writer of Hebrews. says, you should be teachers, but you need elementary teaching. Milk versus solid food. You need, which the solid food is teaching about righteousness. It's interesting. Uh, if you get a chance, go back and look at that passage in Hebrews. Because some of the things that he calls milk, uh, a lot of us think are like the meat of the word. And they're not. 
at least according to the writer of Hebrews, the meat of the word is, is righteousness. It's training in righteousness. It's teaching about righteousness. Okay, so, so I, I, I think the paradigm, while I can't point to text and verse that says this is the, I think it's a helpful way, again, just look at things. By the way, uh, Paul kind of refers to milk and, and meat as, like, you know, both for the meat. But, but Peter says this, like newborns, crave the spiritual milk to grow up in your salvation. That there's something about going back to the basics and craving it that's really pretty good. Okay, so when you are an infant, what you really need is to experience new birth. You need to experience a place of celebration, a place of consecration, a place of safety. Here's my question, folks. When you came to faith, did you get those things in the church? Because you know a child that, that doesn't get what they need when they're an infant will, will develop all kinds of dysfunctions in adulthood. And in fact, sometimes what we desperately need to do when they're in adulthood and they're acting out because they didn't get, they weren't celebrated as a child. They weren't in a safe environment. They weren't truly given over to God. It, it creates some challenges in their life. And, and the only way to really change that, as far as I'm concerned, is to allow them to have an episodic encounter with Jesus and his people and be celebrated again. Come to a place where they're safe. They're safe to make mistakes. They're safe to mess up things. They're safe to do dumb things. They'll be corrected, but they'll be loved and celebrated and consecrated again and again and again and again. That's the beginning place of this developmental piece, and it's it's important and it's critical. But then, at some point, as you become a child, you move to maturation. You need to learn. And then from maturation, young adult, you get to this place that I'll use the word calling. I hate to quote Frederick Nietzsche, but he said something that was really worthwhile. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any what. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any what. You, some of you might know the story of the stonecutter. I would tell you who said it, but every place I've read it said we don't know who said it. But there's a story of the stonecutter. The noble comes to the stonecutter and he says, tell me about your job. And the stonecutter's like irate and says, Take, open up your eyes. Can't you see? They bring me a stone. I cut it into the right shape. I have it moved over. They bring me another stone. I cut it in the right shape. When I'm done with the day, I go home. I come back and I do it again. And that's what I do day in and day out. I cut stones. It's pretty straightforward. How come you don't see that? Noble kind of backed off, and he went over to the next one. said, so tell me about your job. Ah, oh, well, so I cut stones so I can provide for my family, so I can, I can help other people, so that we can live. There's, it, it's a job, and it's a way that I can do the things that matter to me in my life. And he went, oh, that's helpful. Then he went to the third stone, third stone cutter. He said, tell me about your job. Ah, so I formed stones to build an edifice that allows our whole community who lives in darkness to move toward light, to actually encounter the living God. I'm building something that's going to last thousands of years. At this point in your development, 
you need to come to a place of calling. Whether that's a, a, a child developmental or a spiritual child developmentally. Uh, a bishop friend of mine one time was talking to someone and the person was complaining about the church and said, you know, I, I just don't get fed. The guy had been a believer for about 10 years. He said, I don't get fed. He said, you mean you don't worship God there? Oh, no, no, they, you know, they take about 20 minutes and they, they praise God. Okay. You mean the scriptures aren't read there? Oh, no, no, they read the scriptures every week. Well, so the only people who need spoon-fed past that are babies and sick people. Which one are you? At some point in our development, we need to hear a call from God about how we focus on the kingdom. At least if you want to be happy. If you want to be fulfilled. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus. And then at some point, you enter into an adulthood. And folks, in adulthood, the reality is that you realize this walk isn't easy. Obedience to Jesus can be challenging. That my preferences don't come first. That my calling sometimes, well, no, all the time, carries with it a cross in some context. That there is an engagement with powers of evil. You do realize that we are, according to the Bible, we are in a spiritual battle. And there are principalities and powers. And although Jesus soundly defeated them on the cross, it's almost like the difference between D-Day and V-Day. The cross was D-Day, but there was still a lot of garbage going on until V-Day was finished. And we're in that place between. D-Day is done. The, Jesus wins. And we get to be on the winning side, but there are still battles to be fought. We don't send babies to do that, folks. We don't send children to do that. But we do at some point call adults to step into the battle because adults realize if they don't step into the battle, the battle's going to step into them. It's going to come. So here is the issue, and then I'll close. Um, you can be an adult in one area and be an absolute infant in another. In fact, most of us are adults in an area or two and we're children in other areas. And often the most competent adults in an area fail to recognize that they are infants in another. By the way, the place I saw this most clearly was, you saw this on, on steroids during COVID. Everybody was sure. And everybody disagreed. And everybody was sure that a bunch of you are idiots. It's just, these guys thought you were idiots, these guys thought you were idiots. And I was shocked at the way that invaded the church. And, and I want to say, if that kind of stuff invades the church, and we allow that to separate us, then we have a bunch of infants in some aspect that's allowing that to rule. I can have incredible Bible knowledge and theological knowledge and be judgmental. I can be incredibly successful in business and get on the church board and have no clue about gospel priorities. 
I can have a finely attuned sense of mercy and compassion, and yet I create dependency in the people I try to help. Because I can be an incredible adult in some areas and still be a child in others. And so when we say that we unite for the gospel, it's a recognition that we're all on this developmental journey. And we are going to disagree. We're going to have disagreements. And we, want, we don't want to hide those. Don't want to ignore those. Don't want to sweep them under the, the carpet. But, but I want to be able to say, for most things, you're more important to me than this. I'm not saying this isn't important. This is important. And I'll argue this, and you argue this, and we can talk about which is more important, and we can weigh those things, but you're more important than this. Because this is the gospel. This is the kingdom of God. And I need you to survive that we can be part of the kingdom of God, part of furthering the gospel. I'm not going to, this is probably self explanatory, you get it. Infants need structure, adults need to internalize it. We won't talk more about that. So we're going to celebrate our uniting for the gospel by receiving communion. Pastor Ryan, would you come and lead us?